Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing Chef Kwame Nwachi. But before we get to Chef Kwame, because that episode is really, really dope. He teaches me a lot. And I want you all to know that sugar is supposed to go in grits. I wanted to share some initial thoughts from the first few days of the Derek Chauvin murder trial. In case you missed it, this past Tuesday, there was some powerful testimony that I wanted to share here from the two young witnesses to the murder. Nine-year-old Judea Reynolds and her 19-year-old cousin, Darnella Frazier. And there was another witness, Donna Williams, uh, that Derek Chauvin's attorney sought to paint as an angry black man whose threats to Derek Chauvin as he witnessed a murder were apparently inappropriate for the circumstances and so threatening that Chauvin had no place to go other than staying on the neck of George Floyd out of fear for the bystanders. As a criminal defense attorney, I can tell you that I don't necessarily think that's a winning strategy. But again, uh, we shall see. But I want y'all to let that sink in. Uh, Chauvin was murdering George Floyd in front of children and other witnesses who rightly, like Donna Williams, called him out in real time for being a piece of shit that Chauvin is, and he was. And what's the defense's go-to? That the white officer feared for his safety from a black man who had to call the police on the police as they were killing another black man. So he had no other choice but to kneel on George Floyd's neck for almost 10 minutes. This all while children watched. What we saw in this testimony were heroes, two children who endured unthinkable trauma, take the witness stand to secure justice for George Floyd, and a black man in Donna Williamson who knew that if he had physically intervened, he would have probably been killed too. Bear witness, he called the police and lived to help deliver justice to George Floyd and his family. The massive trauma they had to endure notwithstanding, they all deserve our appreciation and support. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with Chef Kwame Nwachi. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Man, it's an honor to have you on the show, man. I, I'm not gonna, uh, we're gonna go ahead and jump right into it because I know you're busy changing the world through the palette. Uh, but, you know, we start each one of our guests and episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of your career. And your career has been fascinating, to say the least. Talk about your journey from selling drugs to candy on the subway to becoming a James Beard Award winning chef. I mean, tell me, I mean, you hear people make, you know, get it out the dirt, get it out the mud, as we say. Uh, you, you're a true example of that. Talk about it. Thank you, man. I mean, you know, I always got to give praise to the most high my mom. Um, you know, she really uh, instilled in me so many values uh, as as a child. You know, we grew up in the in the Bronx in a one bedroom apartment. She was a caterer. She put me to work at a very young age, five years old. 
And wow, wow. You know, had to help out from everything from peeling shrimp to fabricating vegetables to, you know, packing up for her catering events. And I was left at home. I, I couldn't go to the events, you know, having a five-year-old uh, in your apartment looks cute, but outside looks like child abuse. So um, <laughs> I had to stay home and, and I was able to play with different ingredients, you know, and that, that like hobby turned into a passion and that passion turned into a career. And that's really how I got my start, you know, and then there was a lot of things in between, which we'll get into, but it was really, um, you know, my mother and, and just helping out around the house, do whatever it takes to keep the lights on. You said fabricating vegetables? Yeah, yeah. What, what the hell? What does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> so you, you cut them up into different sizes based on the cooking application. So being anywhere from mincing to dicing to slicing to peeling to blanching. Um, oh, I thought you meant shucking. I thought you were shucking, shucking green beans or something, man. I didn't. Corn, green, and collard greens. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. How did your mother shape your view of food? And how did she, you know, a lot of times when you're doing stuff, like that, you run away from like, uh, man, my daddy had me out there toiling in the vineyard. I don't want no parts of that no more. Talk about how you, she informed your desire and made you want to become a chef. Well, you know, it was a way for us to spend time together. So it was something that I, it was, those were moments that I really cherished, but she made it fun. Yeah. Everybody else's parents were in the office nine to five. My mom's in the kitchen drinking, (laughs) drinking rosé and and make an etouffee. So I, I actually, <laughs> that, that seems like something that I want to do. <laughs> and I didn't really see it as a true profession until I got older. Um, you know, we struggled a lot as growing up. So I didn't see the opportunity as this profession could allow. But but I took that leap of faith and, you know, I took put one foot in front of the other. And every single year I was just like, I want to be doing a little bit better. So if I was working at a restaurant that was you know, one star, then I want to work at two stars and three stars, you know, then I want to run my own restaurant, then I want to own something else. So like, it was because of that entrepreneurial spirit that she put in me at such a young age, I was able to take that inspiration and, you know, blow it out of the water. What are some of the unique challenges that you found to be associated with being a young black chef? And then tie in your mom's experience, because this is a question that I've been meaning to ask, and I'm not sure I even know what the question means, but Talk about your food philosophy. Um, I mean, especially within fine dining, it's it's difficult because there's not a lot of people that look like you. Correct. Here you're, you're in this boys club of boys that aren't like you. You know, there's not there's not many women. So that's why I say boys club, you know, and then there's not many people of color. So it's a we call it a good old boys club. <laughs> and, you know, you had to be you had to laugh at everyone's jokes. You had to. <laughs> to hang out at the end of service, you know, to, to even be considered, um, to move up that chain. And it was something that was pretty difficult. And especially when you get to the high, high, you know, upper echelon of any industry, there's a lot of hazing that goes on there, whether it's, you're doing the grunt work, you know, you're, you're being treated like, like crap, you're, you're broken down so they can build you back up. But there's a lot of isms that are, that are hidden within that, that, that hazing, that breaking down. Mm. And I think women and, and people of color in that world just get broken down. They don't get built back up. And then my food philosophy is, I think a dish should tell a story. When a dish tells a story, it has a soul. You're not just cooking for perfect seasoning. Uh, you're cooking to really share an experience with someone. And I think it always resonates more. So I'm always trying to tell the story of something, of someone, of some place, of some time within my food. 
Man, that's powerful right there, man. I'm trying to get the seasoning right, the temperature <laughs> right. I'm still still trying to figure out the the big green egg and get my my temperature <laughs> right on stuff. Outside of a few people like food critics or hardcore foodies that really follow chefs, talk about how difficult it is to become an executive chef. Like, what are the steps that tend to be involved in becoming an executive chef? Um, it's a long road. It's a long road. You got to know everything in the kitchen. You got to work all the stations. You got to you have to put in the time. You have to put in those ten thousand hours, you know, to really master that craft. And uh, so, this is not something that you. This ain't something you just. You know, some people can jump high or run fast. This isn't something you just you just blessed with per se. You can be blessed with cooking better than other people. Absolutely, I know people mm. that have been in kitchens for a while, and I'm like, the way you hold your spoon, it lets me know that like this is it for you, man. Like this, <laughs> you know, like. So I, I think that there are certain people that are talented and all, especially with seasoning your food, knowing the balance of acidity, of salinity, of heat, of fat. And I think that is something that people are gifted with and it takes other people longer to learn. But a chef at the end of the day is a leader and you can't just know all those. You can't just know how to cook on the big green egg flawlessly and not know how to talk to people. You can't know how to mm. get the right temperature on a steak and don't show up on time. <laughs> You can't know how to season your fish properly, but not be organized, right? So like there's more to it than, than just the cooking aspect. And that's why the people that hold those spoons, crazy to me, some of them are some of the best chefs, you know, in America um, because they're, they're a leader at the end of the day. And that's what the word chef means. Before we get to your book, I want to talk about your influences and what that actually means as a practical matter and how you prepare your meals. You talked about a story, but tell us, and talk us through the Caribbean and African influences that shape your culinary orientation and what each of those influences contribute. Oh, uh, so, you know, my background is Nigerian, Jamaican, Trinidadian, and Creole. You know, my mm. mother is Creole and, you know, her father's Trinidadian. My, my father's side is Nigerian and Jamaican. So I saw the direct translation of, you know, across an ocean, people that were taken to what they're still eating to this day, you know, so like jambalaya we eat in Louisiana, they have jollof rice, you know, chicken and dumplings we have over here, they have fufu and stew, you know, gumbo we have over there, they have okra stew, barbecue over here, they have suya. So, you know, I think knowledge is power in the fact of learning your history and, and learning the, the link um, between your cultures, even if they are, you know, 400 years removed, it shows the strength in that as well. And that directly translates to, to the food that I like to put on the plate. And when you tell these stories, I mean, you got to feel like you're introducing new when you when you have someone come to one of your restaurants and they taste this on their palate, you're introducing them to a new part of the world, one that they may be shut out from. Yeah. One they may be shut out from in many instances. Right. One they may be shut out from in terms of even the knowledge of knowing that there is a correlation, but also one that they may be shut out from experiencing their own culture while, you know, celebrating a special experience. We don't have many restaurants we can go to and get a craft cocktail and a plate of oxtail and rice and peas. So like having a restaurant that you can do that, where you can propose to your And that sounded so good. That, yeah. that was just, that was delicious right there, man. That was a bar. That was a bar. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like, you know, that that's, that's the beauty of this cuisine that is so untapped in so many ways. I mean, I know, I know 20 restaurants I can go to right now and get a styrofoam plate of curry goat, you know, and it's delicious. Don't get me wrong. But, I, you know, I want to sometimes I want to go out and sit and eat that food in that in those restaurants. And it's few and far in between. And, and that's 
that's no fault of our own. You know, that's that's part of systematic racism. That's part of keeping people out of the out of the circle. That's a part of investors not, you know, um, investing in restaurants of that nature. That's a part of food critics and food editors not even being uh, of African or Caribbean descent. So they're not even going to these restaurants mm. and searching them out and putting them on the map. So, you know, I think the more we take control of our own narrative, um, the more we'll see those restaurants around the world. We rarely see Afro-Caribbean fusion in what can be considered or described as upscale dining. And you touched on it briefly, but why don't we see more Afro-Caribbean influences in higher-end restaurants? And what's been your experience in how white diners have responded to non-traditional Black American cuisine? Because, you know, the first thing people want is, give me some soul food or something like that. You know, it's a very narrow minded approach to cuisine. Exactly. Well, I, you know, it lends itself to my, to my last answer that we, we're not seeing people of, of color in different areas, right? At the food critic level, at the, you know, uh, the food writing level, at the investment level for, for, for food and beverage operations. Um, and if we're not seeing these, these food critics going out to search, seek out these Afro-Caribbean restaurants to then give them the amplification that they need, um, then the consumer isn't really going to know that they even exist. True. I mean, that's 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 a now that is a word. It's more fleshed out, but that's a word. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm from the South, and so I love traditional Black Southern dishes. And you have some Southern roots as well, with your mother being from Louisiana. You talked about that Creole impact. Talk about how Southern food culture, particularly Black Southern food culture, has become mainstream in American culinary circles, and how does this? You talked about some of those uh, uh, cross-cultural influences. How does the South play in that philosophy and on your menus? Um, I mean, I think soul food has always been super popular. <laughs> you know, I think that there are... You said it like, does it bore you? Oh, no, not at all. I love soul food. I think it's always been super popular. I don't think it gets the credit it deserves. Gotcha, gotcha. What I mean by that. And it, it, it also gets a lot of credit when when white people cook soul food, you know, so... I think that's a, a missed opportunity to even get some authenticity w- within that type of cuisine. Soul food plays a part in my cuisine because, you know, you can't you can't talk about soul food or American cuisine without talking about West African cuisine. You know, so I think learning the history of both makes them both close to my heart. You know, my family, half my family is from the South and half my family is from, you know, West Africa and the Caribbean. So Soul food is something I grew up eating. Soul food is not, you know, monolithic to me. Soul food, you know, black food isn't just one particular thing. Yeah. Um, and it can mean something different, you know, depending on what state you're in. Let's talk about your book for a minute. Notes from a young black chef. For people who haven't read your book, what is it about and what do you want readers to take from it? If I'm not mistaken, you got a young adult version coming out soon too, right? Well, yeah, you know, I'm really excited about the young adult version so more and more children can can absorb this story because it's a story of the black experience in America. It's it's not uh, particular just to the food industry. You can remove that word chef and put in attorney. You can yeah. remove that word chef and put in, uh, you know, author. I think the path to success is 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 not linear at all for people of color. You know, if we play by the rules, those rules weren't made for us. And you have to make <laughs> up your own rules. True. And that's what that book is really about, is doing whatever it takes to make something happen. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God. This is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How do you introduce young people um, into the kitchen? But even more importantly, what are some of the, I mean, let's go back to the book. But what are some of the challenges that you had to overcome? What are some of the things that molded you into who you are today? That you that you describe talk about in the book something that we can take from and and uh, as my parents would say stick to your ribs a little bit. Yeah, well, you know there were a lot of challenges of of, of, of racism of being judged before people even saw what I was doing or of you know being labeled aggressive. Um, <laughs> I, I hear that one enough. I hate that one. Yeah, of um, the unseen racism where people aren't talking about you know they're they're not just calling you the n word but they're calling it behind your back and not promoting you and you hear it through the great mm-hmm. that this is and you can't prove it you can't go to hr with a, on a hunch you know we're not detectives so so yeah i mean those things would, would would set me back um which would have helped propel my career a little bit more but also it made me grab the reins like all right why am i trying to prove myself to to a system that doesn't want me why don't i create my own system correct i can print my own name on my chef code and put an executive chef above it like they've done and then just open my own restaurant. Ain't nothing but a jacket, um, you know? <laughs> so, you know, for me, it was really taking control of my narrative, which it taught me to do and not really listen to the naysayers or the people that want to keep them down um, or the people that don't want to um, really, the people that don't view me as a person, but view me as a threat. And, um, you know, that's, and, that's another thing what the book is about. And now you're sharing experiences with them. Uh, throughout days and nights, they come into your restaurant. They view you as a threat, but then they they need you to help to help share that story, whatever that whatever that plate tells. So, talk to me about my kids. What, how do I get them in the kitchen? How do I show them around? How do I start them? Because me, I may not be an executive chef, but mm-hmm. I'm decent. I'm decent. You know what the green egg is, so I know you got to eat a little <laughs> something going on. Um, you know, I think it's about telling a story. I think kids are kids are more susceptible to stories than just finite details, you know, they, they want to, they want to hear a story. So whether it's telling them about George Washington Carver, you know, no, whether yeah. telling them about um, Hercules, you know, telling them about like, you know, I would say weave it into a story and, you know, and make it fun for them. 
Um, it doesn't always have to be about the food. It should just be about the experience because you can learn about more about a person's culture through their food than anything else. But if you make it, teach them about, you know, you know, Mexican cuisine in Veracruz and oh, there's yeah. Cuban culture there. And that was where some, you know, African slaves were brought and their food and their landscape has been changed because of that. And you're showing them, you know, the maracas that they use, the music, and you're dancing to that. And then like, oh, by the way, they eat this. And it's like, okay, they're dancing. Oh, 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 I still get my chicken fingers later, but I'm going to do this. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's the way to go about it. That's how I would do it if I was a parent. I'm not a parent. So we're going to definitely take your advice. There's an episode uh, that's been well documented and that you write about in your book uh, was your venture, uh, Shaw Bijou. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, you did. There you go. Which was highly anticipated restaurant that unfortunately closed abruptly. What did you learn from that episode, both as a person and as a chef? I learned um, to pick the right team to get the job done. And that's like that's the most. That's like that's that's life right there, man. A team is the most important part of of anything. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Because I opened a restaurant like six months later, that became a, a world class restaurant. So a lot of people were like, "What did you learn?" I was like, I didn't take a two-year hiatus. Like, <laughs> I started playing two months later. We we knocked it out of the park. <laughs> it was it's more about the like I, They didn't get me down. I mean, I just messed up. Had the wrong people around me. I got the right people around me. Now I see how it worked. That's it. That's I it. got you. Um, you know, I, I look at different uh, Facebook chefs. I'm a, I'm a foodie, if that's a thing. I don't know if you, you see me using air quotes. <laughs> and there was a there was a recent I don't I don't know the the industry dynamics so I won't mention his name but there was a recent very famous Facebook uh, chef has a book out now but he was talking about the fact that he would never own another restaurant his restaurant did, hadn't done well they had all closed talk about the success that you found in your restaurants and what it's like being black owning a restaurant operating a restaurant being executive chef because they all don't succeed in fact people will tell you the one business you don't want to get into is a restaurant business. Talk about that and how you overcome that. I mean, I agree. It's a tough industry and it's a fickle industry, especially right now during coronavirus. It's like saying, let's all go back to the offices for what? (laughs) (laughs) We can, we can order food at home right now, you know? Um, And also the profit margin is so much, uh, the profit margin is probably larger now because you don't need as much overhead as you did before. So the restaurant industry is in a different, is in an interesting place. You know, I found success, but I've also found failures. So I understand his plight. I understand why he would say that. And especially now that we're diversifying ourselves a little bit more as chefs, we don't need to be, uh, you know, boxed in into those four walls. We can write, we can do media, we can do TV, we can do podcasts, you know, we can do anything that our, we can do our wildest dreams. So if you don't want to go that route, then I'm all for it. You know, you, you mentioned a couple of things, but uh, I often ask this of our guests that have made their mark in industries that have traditionally lacked diversity like yours. But how do we create more Chef Kwame's? Where where are they and how do we get more of them in the executive chef pipeline? We got to start nurturing our children more. You know, it starts with our youth. The reason why I gravitated, you said, you know, people that their parents make them do things at a young age, they run away from it. My mom led it with love and creativity and passion and understanding. And I think we have to be with our children uh, more like that and, and introduce different cultures at a very young age so then they're, they're interested. They're not just eating the same things for 37 years and then 
the 38th birthday, you're like, I'm going to try sushi. It's like, what's what one? <laughs> Is that, you know, that, that blows my mind. You hanging out with, with your friends. And they thirty six, like man, I, I ain't eat no raw fish. Like, well, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, I, I ain't never. California rolls, like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think it starts at a young age with that taboo of like, I'm not trying different things. I'm not going to different places. We need to culture our children more, so that can be uh, a career path if they're interested. How do you go from where you've been to Top Chef? Talk about Top Chef, what that what that is like. And and don't you, if I'm not mistaken, don't you, uh, new Top Chef starting April 1st. Had to make sure I got the date right. So talk about that. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it, was, it was incredible being on Top Chef the first time. I mean, Russell Westbrook said yes uh, today that like just making it to the NBA made him a champion. And he doesn't listen to the naysayers and say he'll never win a championship or whatever, because you don't know where I came from. So just getting to top chef was like, I won. <laughs> I come from the South Bronx. Like I'm on national television cooking for Padma, Tom and Gail. This is amazing. And also a plethora of other chefs. So for me, that was that. But like coming back as a judge was like, wow, I really can do anything. <laughs> like sitting next to them behind judges table was like, wait a minute. Like I'm here. <laughs> I'm here, here. Like I'm here, 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 here. Like I don't. <laughs> I can now do my own show. You know, like I can, I can, I can create my own top chef if I want to. If I got to this table, then there's nothing that could stop me. Um, Amen to that. And that's that's what I saw. If you could cook any meal, like if you if you were sitting there, I know you hate these questions, but I'm gonna ask <laughs> because I'm I'm learning. I'm learning. I I, I got a I got a better question for you in a minute. But if you were cooking any meal for the heads of state, president of the United States, et cetera, and they they wanted you to go do a, a go-to, something that was fun, not one of these foo-foo meals that it's all spread out on the plate, et cetera, with a little drizzle or something here, what, what are you cooking for? So what's your go-to? You know, I probably cook them like a proper Creole meal or something. You know, like they'd be peeling each shrimp and crawfish on the table. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. I can see it in the middle of that state dinner, just a newspaper on the table and I'm like dumping crawfish. <laughs> and I'm like, don't sit down. You don't sit down and eat this. You got to stand up. There's no now you got And pop the head. Mr. Prime Minister, pop the head, Mr. Prime Minister. Come on, Joe, let me show you how to do this. Um, then I would probably do like, you know, after that, some etouffee of some sort, like crawfish etouffee or some, or some gumbo. And then I may hit them with some, uh, some curry goat for the main course, curry goat with some roti, some rice and peas, some cocoa bread, and just make it like super wholesome, maybe like whole roasted jerk chickens. On Man, the you're not doing nothing after that. You're not doing nothing after that. You're going <laughs> yeah. to sleep. You're going to, going to sleep. Everyone's going to be like, how many bedrooms are in this White House? <laughs> can I <laughs> just pull out a cot? I know this is big, but seriously, how many of us can see that? <laughs> so um, look, I, I I do something down here, which which I've grown up with people. Yeah, I, I need you to settle this debate. I, I put sugar in grits. So is that a, yeah. a, I mean, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. If I got, if I have the preeminent black chef in the entire United States of America, if not the world, putting sugar in grits, I want everybody to know that, you know, this is the appropriate thing to do. So like if you eat breakfast, like eggs and bacon, yes, sugar with grits. But if you're eating like a brunch dish of like shrimp and grits. No, of course not. Of course yeah. not. That's, course that's not. what I'm saying. Man. We can all live in the same world, y'all. It just I know, yeah. What we're eating. Exactly. I just made some bumping uh, uh, shrimp and grits the other day. You know, the secret was a little, little chicken broth. 
yeah, a little little chicken broth to, to season it pro- appropriately. Uh, you you've recently left uh, your last venture, Keith and Ken. So what's next for you? You know, I just started a media company called Broken Whip Media, and we're developing our own shows. Um, that's gonna be so fat. That's gonna be <laughs> that's uh, gonna be dope. So we're doing scripted and unscripted shows. Um, I just finished my third book. Uh, it's a cookbook. So you'll be, you'll be able to get shrimp and grits in there. Um, I am the new executive producer for Food and Wine magazine. And um, yeah, I'm working on some restaurants potentially in the future. But um, but yeah, those are the things that are taking my my time the most right now. Look, man, you, you are a dope, dope. Uh, just a, a product of a great environment, like a village to raise a child, like your mom pouring so much into you. Now you're pouring it out on the palates of of so many. I, I need to cook for my wife tonight. Tell me what I need to do before I let you go. Ooh. And I'm not in the doghouse. I'm in everything good. I can always take it to another level, though. Oh, okay. we've, been mar- we've been married five years, been together longer, so I, I need to spice it up a little bit. Um, why don't you use that green egg and make some like proper jerk chicken? How do you make proper jerk chicken? This is a difficult thing to do. What, what, do I need to use like the the paste that you buy from the store? You gonna you gonna help? Come okay. on now, come on now. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a, there's a little recipe online by by a guy you may know. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. So some proper jerk chicken. Yeah, proper jerk chicken. That's it. And what type of what what wine pairing? There we go. I got it. What wine pairing am I putting with that? Or what drink am I pairing with that? I would do a classic rum punch or a painkiller. Oh, Lord. That's what I'm talking about. You're trying to get to it. We're going to be knocked out at 9 o'clock, but we're going to have fun prior to. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely, going, you're definitely going to go to sleep. you definitely going to <laughs> Chef yeah. Kwame, my brother, thank you so much for joining the show, man. This has been a pleasure. I've learned a lot, and I hope that people admire your persistence. I hope that people look out for your next things. Top Chef, April 1st, uh, your new young adult book coming out Uh young adult version of your book coming out April 13th and your new media company with shows that we're going to be seeing all over the place. I even hope you do some for our young people on Nick Jr., Disney Plus, et cetera. I'm calling it Netflix. We are manifesting it here on this show, man. So thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about President Biden's announcements on Tuesday with his first slate of federal judicial nominees. With 11 lawyers and judges, including three nominees to the federal appeals courts, the list is what we want to see. Shout out to the Biden administration and, in particular, his chief of staff. All three of his appellate court appointees, Kentanji Brown-Jackson, Tiffany Cunningham, and Candace Jackson Akiwumi, were black women. A big deal because only five of the nation's 300 appellate court justices are black women, so he can almost double their representation this year alone with a single slate. More importantly, he appointed a host of other diverse candidates to the courts, including nominees from state courts, nominees that have served as public defenders and criminal defense attorneys, and judges that didn't all go to Harvard or Yale Law School. That clapping you hear in the background is appropriate. I look forward to seeing more slates like this, and I commend the Biden-Harris administration for both nominating a diverse slate of judges and for showing a sense of urgency around appointments that we simply didn't see from my friend Barack during his administration. I'm still waiting on my bill to expand the judiciary, but this is a right first step. And that's that on that. Thank you for tuning in again, and we will see you, or you can hear us. It's kind of freaky when I say we can see you. 
that you can hear us again next Monday. Thank you for tuning in to the Bukhari Sellers Podcast. Yeah.